Okay, are we sure? I don't know. Man, I, I'm a mess, Matt. That's, 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 that's the truth. Uh, we are going to continue on in Matthew 18 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the Pew Bibles. We'll be on page 873. There's really uh, two kinds of people in the world. The kind of person that tells you when you have something hanging out of your nose and the kind of person that doesn't. You know who you are. I am the person that doesn't. I, it's, a, it's a moral failing on my part. Let my friends down over and over and over again. I'm pretty conflict averse and for some reason letting somebody know that they've got something going on on their face feels like conflict, and I just, I'm not into it. I know, I'm, I'm wrong. I, I, I admit that. We're going to be talking about something real practical today. Jesus is going to kind of talk about just kind of the nuts and bolts of dealing with conflict in the church. Uh, we commonly call this subject church discipline. That sounds scary. Uh, maybe some of you are like, man, why did I come to church today? But here's the thing, the word discipline is the same word that we use when we say disciple, discipleship. If we are following Jesus, if we've committed ourselves to following Christ in the community of his people, we want to be disciplined people. We want to have rhythms and habits and practices and a lifestyle that looks more and more like Jesus. And so discipline shouldn't be something that we are afraid of. It should be something that we welcome. And I think we miss that when we take this section of Scripture out of context. So I'm going to back up a few verses to verse 12. We talked about this last week, but Jesus says, What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So this is, this is how Jesus sets up this next section of Scripture. He's talking about the beloved little one, the, the follower of Jesus, the citizen of the kingdom, the son or daughter of God that wanders away. And the heart of God is to pursue that person, to go after that person, because he loves that person. And this is just a continuation of Jesus' thoughts. So he says, this this is how I want you to go after the one that wanders. In verse 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Jesus says your brother. You could also say your sister. This is the primary way that the Bible talks about God's people. We are a family. We aren't a club. We aren't we aren't a building. We aren't a 501 uh, C3 nonprofit organization. We aren't a um, political action group. There's, there's all of these things that people think the church is, but primarily we are a family. And so as we look at this passage, keep that in your mind. You're talking about members 
of your family. If your brother sins against you. Now, in your Bible, it might, there might be a little, a little uh, footnote next to against you. My Bible, it says some manuscripts omit against you. And, and the truth is the better manuscripts that we have leave that part out. The oldest manuscripts that we have of Matthew just say, if your brother sins, go and rebuke him. And I, I think that's important because it's easy to read this passage and go like, well, this person is off the rails over there, but they haven't done anything to me, so it's not my problem. It's none of my business what they're doing. But Jesus says, yeah, it is. Even if what that person is doing doesn't affect you, it's your responsibility to deal with it. If God has given you the insight to see something in someone else, a brother or sister that is harming them and harming others, if he's given you that, it's your responsibility to deal with it. In, in the very first book of the Bible, uh, the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis, uh, Cain kills his brother Abel and God comes and says, hey, where's your brother? And Cain's all like, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for knowing what my brother's doing? And that's become like a little phrase in our culture. Well, somebody will be off doing something, and am I my brother's keeper? It's not my job. But Jesus says, yeah, yeah, it is. It's your responsibility, if you see something in a brother and sister, to go to them. Go and rebuke him. Rebuke is a, I don't like that word. That's the word that Jesus used. But it doesn't mean, doesn't mean unkindness. A rebuke isn't unkind, but it is direct. He says, you need to specifically go to that person calmly, kindly, gently. Remember, the lost sheep is astray and we're going after them. And tell them, hey, I see this thing in your life and it's destroying you. It's destroying others and it needs to be dealt with. And he says, do it in private. This is where we get things wrong, right? We, we don't want to deal with things in private. We want to um, talk about it. You know, hey, have you seen so-and-so? They're really off the rails. Yeah, we should pray for them. No, you go to that person in private, alone. You don't talk about it. You don't share it with your friends. You don't post about it on social media. You go to that person privately. Why? Because you care about that person, right? If you didn't care about somebody, you would spread all their dirty laundry all over town. But because you love your family, because you're committed to the people in the community of God, you go to them in private and you say, hey, can we talk? I see this thing. But then that, that brings up an interesting question. Turn, if you'd like, to 1 Peter chapter 4. In Peter's, uh, in Peter's letter at, towards the end of chapter 4 in verse 8, he says, above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. And he's quoting the book of Proverbs there. So Peter seems to think, you know what? Because you love one another, people of God, there's a lot of things that you can just overlook. There's a lot of things that we do as sinful human beings that the response of the people of God is just to go, you know what? I love that person and I'm gonna let that go came to church this morning, didn't sleep well last night, a little bit grumpy, you snapped about your coffee because it wasn't the right kind. 
of Panama coffee. It was a cheap Panama coffee, not the $600 a pound Panama coffee that you thought you were getting, hypothetically. And, and you know, maybe the right response is, you know what? It's okay. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to let that go because we love. So how do we know when we need to confront someone in sin? I have a couple thoughts. First of all, when it's definitely sin. Like if you're just annoyed at somebody because, you know, they chew with their mouth open or whatever, like that's not sin. That's not something that you confront somebody and rebuke them for. You learn to live with each other because we're all annoying. When it's something that's going to deeply harm them, when it's going to deeply harm the community of God's people, when it's going to tarnish the witness of Christ in the community, and then when you have seen it personally, you don't, you don't go to rebuke somebody based on hearsay. I was, uh, was working with somebody, and he, he was telling me a, a story about his church experience, and he, had, he brought a girl to church for the first time, and they were sitting in the, in the service, and then this older person came up to them in the middle of the worship service and, and rebuked him for his lifestyle of sin. And he said, you know, we even had a seat between us. We weren't touching each other like nothing. And, and, and he was just so confused by that. That's not a good reason to rebuke somebody. You don't know that anything's going on. When somebody is definitely in sin and it is a pattern of sin that's deeply harmful to them, to other people, and to the witness of Christ, that's when we step in because they're going astray. And another thing is you have to be prepared to escalate it. We're going to talk about what happens if they don't listen. What do you do next? Well, you, you bring in a couple other trusted people, and then if they don't listen, then you bring it before the church. And so play through in your mind, if you think this person is sinning, what happens when you bring it before the church? You know, Jackson, as you were pulling out, I heard a little bit of rock and roll music on your radio. I think we should probably talk about that. If Jackson doesn't listen to my rebuke, am I going to be able to bring it before this church and have him disciplined? No, everybody's going to laugh about that. That's not a problem. Jesus is talking about serious, crippling sin. And then he says, if he listens to you, if she listens to you, you have won your brother. See, that's, that's the goal of all this. If you, if you go into a situation where you're like, I gotta talk to this person about their sin and your heart is not for their restoration, for their goodness because you love them, if it's your pride, if it's like, I'm gonna tell them what's coming to them, I'm gonna show them that I'm more holy than them, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna feel superior, I'm just gonna, I love the power that this authority gives me. Like those motivations are all twisted and wrong. And Jesus says the reason you're going to this person is because you love them, because you want to see them flourish. But what if they won't listen? What if they just say, you know what, I, don't, I, don't, I think you're wrong. I think what I'm doing is fine. But if you won't listen, verse 16, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. 
So you haven't talked to anybody about this. You haven't told anybody about this. You've just seen this thing in a member of your family, and you've tried to deal with it privately, and they, they, won't, they won't listen to you. They don't think they're in the wrong. And so then you, you want to escalate it a little bit by bringing a couple other trusted people into the situation. It doesn't say they have to be leaders, but they do need to be Christians. They do need to be members of the community of God. And the people you choose to bring into the situation should be motivated on what Jesus said in verse 12 through 14. Remember, we're talking about bringing back a stray sheep that is lost. You love this person. You care about this person. So what kind of people are you going to bring into the situation? People that they respect, people that they trust, not people that are just going to automatically side with you. You know, we get three people together and we can gang up on them. That's not the point of this. The point is to win our, per, our brother or our sister back. But what if they still don't listen? If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. See, the appeal to the, the whole church, I, I feel like sometimes we think that that that's like the punishment. If you keep sinning, I'm going to tell the whole church about it. That's not the point. The thing is, if, if you've decided to go astray, at some point we need to have an intervention. We need to get the whole family together and say, hey, we love you. We care about you. We want what's good for you. And we're concerned about this pattern of behavior that we've seen. Please listen. Please turn back to Christ. It's only if that fails that the community's relationship with that person has to change. Jesus says, treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. Again, it's, it's funny. I think the church has used this to to shame people, to shun people, to kick people out onto the street. But if all you have to do is read through Matthew, how does Jesus treat the Gentile? How does Jesus treat the tax collector? He, he loves them. He cares for them. He, he invites them into the life that he's offering the world. See, the thing about the church is... The church's role, one of the church's roles, is to verify membership in the community of God. And, and what I mean by that is when, when the church baptizes someone, when the church enrolls a member, what we are saying as a people is we've looked at this person and we believe that they're Christians. We don't know their heart. All we see is their life. But if somebody from the outside comes and knocks on our door and says, hey, is this person here? Do they follow Jesus? The church says, yeah, they do. We've, we've, we've approved of them by allowing their baptizing, baptism, by adding them to our membership. Now, that doesn't change whether or not they're a Christian. Nobody, nobody can do that. We can't 
Um, we don't have the authority to say whether or not somebody is a follower of Christ, but we do have the authority given to us by Jesus to affirm that, to verify that. And when Jesus says, treat them like a Gentile and tax collector, what he's saying is, at that point, the church has to go, you know what? We can't give our stamp of approval to you anymore. We don't, we don't know. We don't know your heart, but based on your actions, we we're not sure whether you're a follower of Christ or not. We thought you were. We baptized you. We welcomed you into the membership. And for a while, everything was going great. But now we've, we've seen this thing in your life, this dangerous, dark thing that's causing you to go astray. And we've talked to you about it. And then we brought a few other people in to talk to you about it. And then we had the whole church come and talk to you about it. And you still don't care. And so now we're forced to go, are you a Christian? I don't know. And so the relationship with this person at that point changes. We love them, we care for them, but we see them as someone who needs the grace of God in their life for the first time, who hasn't come to Jesus by faith, who doesn't bear allegiance to Christ because of the way that they're living their life. All throughout Matthew, Jesus treats Gentiles, non-Jews, tax collectors with love and care and truth, patience, and gentleness. That shouldn't change in our experience with people who have wandered away from the faith. But at the same time, it doesn't help to not be honest with them. If, if, if you've decided you're not going to follow Christ and you're going to wander off into whatever sin and you're not going to allow yourself to be brought back by the rebuke of your family, it's no good to you for us to just pretend that that's not a thing. Everything's fine. That would be a disservice to the one in sin. It's our job to say, hey, you know what? We love you. We care about you. We want to be your friend but we want you to turn back to Christ more than anything. And then Jesus keeps talking about the authority of the community of God. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Notice the weird, I think it's, might be pluperfect tense. I'm not a grammar person. But what, what Jesus is saying is, it's not that the things that the church does dictates the things in the spiritual realm. It's actually the opposite. The things that the church does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the, the power of God, are things that have already been affirmed by God himself. That doesn't make the church infallible, but that does give God's people authority to make decisions. This is the same language that Jesus used for Peter a couple chapters ago. Remember, he called him the rock, the foundation of the church, and he says whatever he binds will have been bound and whatever he looses will have been loosed. And so he's expanding this authority to the whole church. As we as a community are God's representatives in the world. We, there's, no, there's no government, there's no corporation. There's, you know, just because your favorite fast food restaurant puts a Bible verse on the bottom of their cups doesn't mean that they have the authority 
of God in the world. The church has been given that authority to go out, to make disciples, to represent me. That's what it means to be an image bearer. The the, the ancient practice of of making statues is that leaders, uh, emperors would make images of themselves and place them at far-flung locations around their empire because the emperor couldn't be everywhere at once. And so he put his statue out there to remind the people of who was in charge. And we are God's image. All of the communities of God's people around this world are reminders of God's authority. And so as the church is submitted to the word and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we have authority, Jesus says, to bind and loose. Something I ran across recently is that binding and loosing is almost um, surely about working in the spiritual world. Um, Jesus talks about coming and binding the strong man, uh, binding Satan for the work that he is about to do, and, and binding and loosing is language that is about spiritual power. And this is something that Jesus gives to the church. We have power, we have authority over the spiritual world. Jesus is connecting the experience of this person trapped in sin to the work of Satan. And if you, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is an example of this in practice. Paul is talking to the Corinthians who have a man in their midst who has an illicit relationship with his stepmother, And Paul's pretty concerned about it. In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, he says, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is what he's talking about, binding and loosing. He's saying, give that one over to the enemy because that's the way that he wants to go anyway. Not because we hate him, not because we want to destroy him, but because we love him and we want him to return to us. But Paul gives, he points out that the Corinthian church has that authority. Hand that one over to Satan. The church has the authority over spiritual power. We see that in Ephesians 6, where we're told to put on the armor of God because our enemy is not people, but it's spiritual power. Verse 19 Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. This is one of those hard verses where you go like, really? Is that true? Because it sure doesn't seem like I get everything I ask for when I pray. Maybe you do. I think it's pretty clear that that's not true. We don't get everything that we ask for when we pray. James, in his letter, says we don't get what we ask for because we ask with the wrong motives. We've got all of these broken and twisted and sinful reasons why we want these things, and God's like, no, that's not any good for you. I'm not giving you that. What Jesus is saying is that we are assured of what we ask for when we are in alignment with him. 
where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. That doesn't just mean that we throw out Jesus' name like a magic word. It means when we are aligned with who Jesus is, with we, when we are aligned with the heart of God, then we can ask for what's on our hearts. And because our hearts are the same as God's hearts, we will get what we ask for. Specifically, Jesus is talking about restoring someone to fellowship in the church. How many of you have friends, family that used to be Christians that have decided, you know, they don't, they don't know how to do that anymore. They've wandered away. They are that lost sheep. Jesus says, pray for them. Gather together and pray for them. Lift them up. Appeal to God for them. See, Jesus, Jesus says, if you're doing that, I'm, I'm there too. I am there among you. That is my heart for these people as well. Back to verse 14. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And I believe in free will. I believe that people have the ability to wander if they choose. But God doesn't want them to wander. God doesn't want them to stray. And if we have members of our family that have walked away from the faith and we lift them up in prayer, Jesus says, that's, that's what I want too. I want them to come back to the family. So discipline has a really bad reputation. Many churches don't, don't practice any kind of church discipline. There's stories after story after story of it going badly, of it being domineering and oppressive, of people getting hauled up before church and have a laundry list of their sins brought before them and of being shamed before the congregation and kicked out. And, you know, when you see them on the street, cross to the other side and don't talk to them and all of these things like that. And, and I would say if, if there's something that Jesus commands and the way it's being practiced doesn't look like Jesus, then we're doing it wrong. If what we consider church discipline is unkind and unloving and ungracious, then we've missed it because Jesus is none of those things. So as we close, I want to talk about six different ways that we do it wrong. The first thing is, is we gossip, right? We're really good at that. I think gossip is one of those things that we, we don't even realize that we're doing. We do it so well. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? You won't believe what they did. We should pray for them. Yeah, we should. because you don't really care about the person because, because it makes you feel good because you're not doing that thing. I'm not a sinner like them. I, it makes me feel uh, more virtuous and more holy if I can tell everybody how bad other people are. And I'm sure we don't articulate that. We don't think that through very well, but that's at the root of gossip. The second thing we do is we run. When there's problems in a community, 
don't you just go find another church, right? Like, I, don't, I don't like that person. I'll just, I'll just leave. That person hurt me. I'm conflict averse, so I don't want to deal with it. So I'll just leave. That's the bummer thing about living in a community that's got so many churches in ancient Rome or ancient Corinth. There would have been one church. And if you weren't a part of the one church, you weren't a part of church. But people can come and go as they please. And some people have made that their full-time church experience of I spend a few months in this church, and then I spend a few months in that church, and then I spend a few months in that church. And by the time I make it back to the first church, that person I didn't like isn't there anymore. And so then we can start the whole cycle over again. Or maybe you don't do that, but you just pretend that it's not a thing. Somebody's hurt you. You've, you've, been, you've seen this destructive thing in someone, and you're like, ah, just don't worry about it. You, you appeal to First Peter. Love covers a multitude of sins when really you should be digging into this and finding the root of it and helping this person out of it. Just stuff it down deep. Never see it again. Third thing we do wrong is we make it the pastor's job. Hey, pastor, this person's run away. Go deal with it. It's not my job. It's not John's job. Now, if we see it as members of the body, it's our job. But Jesus is very specific here. He says, if you see this, you deal with it. Now, the way our church government works, if we ever had a situation where something had to come before the church, it would go through the elders, and that's an appropriate thing. But... When there's strife in our family, it's all of our responsibility to handle it. The fourth thing we do wrong is we don't belong. This is one of the reasons John was saying well, we're going to have a membership class. We have a formal membership in this church. And that's, that's not a, a, a necessity in the sense that the Bible says we should have membership documents and things like that. But the Bible does is very clear that there is an in the body and an out of the body. And I think we have some flexibility to decide what that looks like. At our church, we have a formal membership process. But if you're not interested in belonging to a local church, whatever that looks like for that church, you can't possibly be discipled through this process. If you show up late and you leave early and you sit in the back and you don't talk to anybody and you're not in community and you don't have any relationships, then the benefit of having other people look into your life and go, hey, I see some need for correction. And it is a benefit. It's what we need. We can't, we can't become more like Christ on our own. We need each other to help us along. And if you refuse to belong to a community in any significant way, you miss out on the privilege of the voices of your brothers and sisters speaking into your life. Fifth way we get it wrong is we, we move too quickly this, this process, even though it's just a few verses, go to the person and then bring a few others and then bring it before the church. When I've seen it done well, it takes a long time. It's a slow process. It is a patient process. It's a gracious process. Hey, we see this thing. Let's work on it together. Hey, it doesn't seem like it's been rectified. Let's meet. Let's talk. Can we go have coffee? Let's come in and have some counseling why? Because we care about people. We love people, and we want them to be part of our family. 
rushing through conflict is rarely a good idea. It's slow, it's methodical, and it's inefficient and sometimes messy. But if you're going to do it right, it has to be done that way. And then lastly, number six, we don't pray. Jesus ends this section talking about prayer. If we're not going to be people that are praying and praying specifically against the spiritual enemies that are attacking our lives, we're not going to be victorious. We're not going to be successful. If we don't come to God in prayer, it's, it's not going to work. What's the point of all this? What, is, is Jesus just like, you know, let me tell you, here's some steps for dealing with conflict. I mean, a part of it is that, but it's so much bigger than that. We're going we're gonna to take communion. We take communion every week, and communion is a reminder of the death of Christ. It's his body broken, his blood shed. And, and this is in such a bigger, magnified way exactly what he did for us, right? He went to us in our need. He didn't let us stray. He doesn't let us wander. He comes after us and he takes drastic measures to come get us to cleanse us from our sin, to pay the penalty for the brokenness that we have in our hearts, to see that we are fit to be adopted into his family. And I feel like, well, I don't know, if I confront them, they might not like me. Jesus allowed himself to be brutally murdered for us. Jesus did more for us to secure our place in the family of God than we could possibly do to help protect one, of one another. And Jesus doesn't directly say it here, but I think the implication is, because of what I did, he says, you can do these little things. You can pursue one another in love. You can bring up things when people are going astray. You can step into messy situations because I did. I did it for you. He pursues us. He intercedes for us. We have been treated well by our Savior. And he says, this is, as my people, I want you to just behave the same way. Before we close, there's these... Um, this is specifically about uh, finding someone in sin, confronting them, but, but it, it expands pretty quickly to just friction. Husbands and wives, parents and children, friends, all these relationships in the church as they bump up against each other, they cause problems. And I, if, you, if you have any problems, which most of you I'm sure don't, but, but if there's any personal problems in anyone's life, we have these flyers at the door. Uh, CB Northwest, the network we're a part of, makes them. They're called, the title is Pursuing Peace Together. And they are gold. They talk about 
how to resolve conflict, how to walk as a peacemaker, how to forgive, how to seek forgiveness, why we fight. And that's like, it's like a single page. There's just so much on here. There's a whole stack of them. They're free. Take one, put it in your Bible. If you're struggling with somebody, walk through it with them. It's a great tool for pursuing reconciliation, for having hard conversations, for helping to get to the root problem of things. We are, we are weak when we don't do this. We are weak when we don't pursue one another in love, when we don't hold each other accountable, when we don't protect our family from the work of the enemy. And my, my prayer this morning is that we would be people that are going to bat for one another because we're all, we're all guilty of it. There's all moments when we wander away and they can be small moments where a brother and sister goes, hey, come back here. And we go, oh yeah, you're right, I'm sorry. Or they can be really difficult moments when we just let somebody go and go and go And then it gets hard and messy and difficult. But it doesn't have to be that way if we're committed to each other, just like Jesus is committed to us. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.